The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Eric Hecht. He is an epidemiologist and adjunct associate professor at the Schmidt College of Medicine at Florida Atlantic University. He is especially interested in the etiology or the cause or causes of disease. And he is a lead author of a recent paper published in the Journal of Public Health Nutrition that we'll be talking about today. It's titled Cross-Sectional Examination of Ultra-Processed Food Consumption and Adverse Mental Health Symptoms. He is also the founder and executive director of the Institute for Etiological Research. Welcome, Dr. Hecht. Hi. Thank you, Melinda. Before we dive into ultra-processed foods... I want to ask what led to your interest in medicine. Well, I think I've been more interested in health than medicine really ever since I was a teenager. I don't think my health was perfect as a teenager, and I was interested in figuring out ways to feel better and to be healthier, and that led me to improving my diet. I was pretty active, so exercise was never an issue, but I think I ate a lot of junk food like most teenagers, and it just wasn't working for me. So I started to explore eating really more fruits and vegetables and whole grains. And that had a remarkable effect. And I very clearly remember it having a remarkable effect on my mood and almost instantly within a week or two. And that turned me on to it. And I've since then, I've always stayed in touch with the research regarding food and health. Do you think that understanding of the power of food and how we feel is well understood in the medical community? Probably not. I think there's a lot of emphasis in medical school on genetic causes of disease and the interplay of genetics and some environmental factors, but those environmental factors are are not well described. There's some emphasis on staying fit and physically active, and of course there is some amount of focus on generally eating well to avoid obesity and the complications of obesity. But the intricacies of diet in terms of consuming lots of fruits and vegetables and understanding the various substances and phytochemicals that are available to improve your molecular health, I don't think is well taught or well understood in the medical community. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Well, I want to talk about a couple of terms because I want our audience to understand the differences. You are an epidemiologist. Can you explain what epidemiology is? Sure. So epidemiology is the science of public health. And what that means is we're interested in everyone's individual health, but we're also interested in population health. So if there is a population problem, for example, substance abuse, or a population problem like obesity and overweight, we just take a different perspective and try and figure out what we as a society need to evaluate and understand and research to improve those the secular trends in population health. 
So as an epidemiologist, we look at the burden of disease in the community, and we try and understand the risk factors and causes of those outcomes and diseases in the community. Well, I think you're in a really important area of medicine right now, especially as climate change becomes more compelling. So the idea of how climate is going to affect population health is so important. Are you looking at that at all? Just peripherally, of course, you know, as the climate changes and as certain areas get warmer or seasons change and, and get prolonged, we have, for example, expansions of our tick population. And there are many ticks that transmit uh, Lyme disease. So in certain parts of the country, we're seeing really record numbers of ticks and lots of Lyme infections. So that's an example of how climate change can directly affect our health. Right. And being based in South Florida, I'm sure you're also looking at things like sea level rise and population displacement, mosquitoes, and other disease vectors. Right, of course. And, and if you get expansion of certain types of mosquitoes, then the government responds by spraying pesticides over broad areas of land, including where people live. So, you know, we're always getting dosed with a little bit of pesticide that the government decides to fly over our heads and spray on us. So there's many interactions between the environment and people's health. And there's more philosophical ideas too, like we are losing our coral reefs, and as such, we're going to lose a term called biodiversity. And so just all the functions in life that occur through all the thousands of species actually hundreds of thousands of species that exist on the planet, as we start to lose so many of those species, we lose a lot of our biodiversity, which changes our ecological environment and will ultimately have effects on each of us as we interact with different bacteria, different viruses, different insects, etc. Right. Well, you got your medical degree and then you went on to get a master's in public health, and then a PhD in epidemiology. What led you to pursue those other avenues of understanding medicine and public health? You know, medicine didn't provide for me the satisfaction of being able to feel like I was affecting change in the way that I thought change should be affected. I'm actually quite cautious about the use of pharmaceutical products. I don't say we shouldn't give them. I'm just cautious about using them. And uh, but when you're a physician, often the solution to a problem is a prescription. So for me, it wasn't a great fit. To me, I find solutions you know, better characterized for how my brain works and how I like to do things by looking at community health, by looking at lifestyle changes, and trying to foster a world where the majority of the people can live healthy, productive lives. There's always going to be illness. There's always going to be trauma. And there's always going to be unanticipated events. And for that, of course, we need a very robust and healthy medical profession and physicians who are able to practice their craft. But that really wasn't where I wanted to spend my time and energy. I wanted to think about what caused disease to begin with and what is the way to avoid Alzheimer's disease and problems like that that take decades and decades to develop. So that's clearly not something that would be very amenable to medical intervention. That's, to me, more likely to be amenable to population health improvements. 
and lifestyle improvements. Exactly. You know, it's been my experience as a dietitian in trying to do dietary education that people would rather continue with their behaviors that have become habitual and take a drug rather than to do the hard work of changing those behaviors if they can. That's true. And, and this is really the problem with the whole area of prevention is prevention it does not provide the instant gratification that a pill would. So you know, if you prevent something, you never knew whether you were going to have it or not have it. And so prevention is a tough area for most people to engage in. They would rather deal acutely with a problem, hope the problem goes away, or learn to adapt to the problem, and, and move on from there. And we even have this kind of mentality, I think, as a society in general. I don't really think that we are winning the game on global warming in terms of making changes that we need to make, I think most people will likely adapt over time to warmer temperatures. They'll figure out where they want to live and where they don't want to live, where they want to go on vacation, where they don't want to go on vacation, what areas they need to avoid during what months. And there'll be this generalized adaptation to an ever-warming environment because to get people to get rid of their gasoline car and to get an electric car and to utilize planet's resources more prudently. That's just not something people are willing or able to do in the time frame we need them to do it in. Yeah. Well, I want to dive into your paper on ultra-processed foods, especially because I think it is unique in that it focuses on mental health. I mean, we are well aware, I think, that junk food or ultra-processed foods contribute to chronic diseases like diabetes and obesity and cancers, but we don't look at mental health enough. And that's what drew me to your paper. So why did you specifically look at mental health? Well, you know, I'm very interested in pediatric health, although this paper was not a pediatric paper. A lot of my papers are. I think that's where health really needs to begin in childhood and adolescence. And we are in the middle of an adolescent mental health crisis where so many teenagers are describing depression and helplessness and anxiety. So it begs the question, why is this happening and what we can do about it? And I think you know, while diet may not be the ultimate solution, I think it can contribute a lot to improved mental health in adolescence based upon what I had read previously. So now, the database I use is a terrific database because it gives you access to a representative sample of the United States. Unfortunately, they don't allow easy access to mental health questionnaires from children. So I had to do the paper in adults, which was fine. I had 10,000 subjects that are nationally representative from this NHANES database and wanted to see for myself what kind of association there was between the consumption of ultra-processed food or poor diet in general and these mental health symptoms that NHANES does provide answers for, for adults 18 and older. Right. Well, in looking at children and adolescents specifically, that's always been my area of concern and interest too. And I feel like ultra-processed foods are so heavily marketed to kids and oftentimes, it's the parents that are blamed for making poor choices, like 
we don't need a ban on these foods or we don't need to have a policy to protect children. It's up to the parents to say no. But I don't think people really understand how difficult it is to parent when there is so much media exposure and pressure, peer pressure from kids who are engaged in eating junk food. I have two young kids and I think actually junk food is introduced from the parents. Honestly, I think parents introduce junk food to their kids because junk food can be perceived as fun and perceived as a reward and perceived as an occasion of celebration. And so there are so many parties, birthday parties and other kind of parties and family events and we're always celebrating we're with with children and junk food becomes part of that and the kids then begin to ask for it. And so they begin the process of shying away from real food and gravitating towards ice cream and foods like that, where they'll eat dinner provided that there's ice cream for dessert. So once the process has started of introducing these foods to kids, they respond to them. These foods are probably somewhat addictive. And so any introduction of them to kids is going to result in the kids asking for them. And then from there, I think media and advertising come into play once kids get their first iPad or their first iPhone or electronic media device, and then they are watching YouTube videos or other types of videos, and then there's advertising on there for the kind of foods that they want to eat. And they want to eat them because they're sweet and they're crunchy and they taste good and that's fun for them. They don't have the executive function to be able to say, boy, that's probably not so good for me. Maybe I should grab an apple. That's really all on the parents and society. I think as a society, we need to promote healthier foods to kids for most occasions. And then if we are going to give them the sweets, we should make the sweets as healthy as possible. All right, we've got to take a break. So let me just remind our listeners that if you are just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking today with Dr. Eric Hecht. He is an epidemiologist and adjunct associate professor at the Schmidt College of Medicine at Florida Atlantic University. And I wanted to have Dr. Hecht on our program because of a paper in which he was one of the lead authors. And it has to do with ultra-processed food consumption and adverse mental health symptoms. And I think because of time, we should dive right into this paper. First, I'm using the word junk food because I think a lot of people understand that term. How would you define ultra-processed food? Well, I think the term ultra-processed food is likely synonymous with junk food, but a little bit more inclusive because it includes four levels of processing. So there's unprocessed food, and then there's minimally processed food, and there's ultra-processed food, and then there's a culinary processed food as well that the NOVA classification has out there. So I think it's almost easier to, and more scientific, to be able to use the NOVA classification where the foods are already divided up into these categories, and then simply quantify how people are eating them. When you're going to do a junk food analysis, you often have the discretion of the investigator what they choose to classify as junk food and what they don't want to choose as junk food. Here, since so many investigations are now done with the NOVA classification, we are always one paper to the next is consistent. 
Well, I will provide a link to the, the UN Decade of Nutrition, the Nova Food Classification and the Trouble with Ultra Processing, just so people can have those classifications. But for me, if somebody were to catch me on an elevator and ask me what an ultra processed food was, I want to be able to quickly tell them these foods are high in sodium, they're high in sugars and additives, and they tend to be low in fiber and micronutrients. So they're not nutrient dense, but they are heavily packaged as well and processed, meaning that they have a lot of ingredients that we don't typically find in our kitchens, such as emulsifiers, preservatives, colors, and flavors, even sweeteners. So to me, the more of those processing ingredients that are in a food, the less likely it's going to have the beneficial nutrients and the nutrient density that I'm looking for in a food. Yeah. And I I don't think it was uh, with malicious intent that the food industry began to process food. If you think back to breakfast cereals from 150 years ago, Kellogg's started making what is really ultra-processed food, like the corn flakes, et cetera. They were originally had a high level of corn in them, and they probably still have some level of corn, but they are processed in a way where there are all these additives that you talked about and all the salt and sugar that's also in there and various oils. And so now, if you compare a cornflake to corn, you would be you know, running from unprocessed to ultra-processed food. Same with you know, a potato chip or a Pringle potato chip versus a potato. All of these kind of foods can go from their natural state into something that seems like it's a potato, seems like it's a piece of corn, but it's, it's really not anymore. And a lot of the natural nutrition has also been excised. And so whatever nutrition is in there is often added back as sprinkled on vitamin material. Right. And it turns out that a lot of these chemicals, which we've always thought of as being benign and not doing anything, like emulsifiers, et cetera, probably have very subtle effects, but meaningful effects on microorganisms in our gut and on some of our receptors and some of our neurotransmitters. So these chemicals are not likely to cause an acute problem. They're not considered traditional toxicants, but they can affect biology sufficiently that chronically administered, they can cause problems. Do you think most of the effects are occurring at the gut level? I don't know about most of the effects, but it's certainly an area that is interesting to monitor and interesting to study. And of course, it's easily available, right? So we can we can look at effects of food on the bacteria, microorganisms in the laboratory quite easily. And we are gaining more and more respect for the microbiome as the mediator of our immune system and digestion and uh, so many functions, even neurotransmitter function that the microbiome is becoming a a central part in nutritional science. Right. Okay. Now you had mentioned that individuals who are eating a lot of these highly processed foods, these foods have an adverse effect on mental health. Can you describe what you discovered in your paper? Sure. We were looking at the symptoms basically that are available in this database, but they're good because they're more subtle mental health symptoms. They're not overt like major depression. So we're looking at mild depression, which 
mild depression was described based upon various responses to questions on a questionnaire. And if you answered yes to, you know, are you sleeping poorly and, or are you frequently sad? Those type of questions, if you had a high enough score, you would be classified as having mild depression. The other questions that were on the questionnaire were, how many days in a month do you feel anxious? And how many days in a month do you feel mentally unhealthy? When questions like this are asked on a questionnaire, they are actually measurement tools. These are validated questions that have undergone an enormous amount of study by the CDC and other groups that do questionnaires, and they are considered to be valid measures. So when people respond that they have had 10 unhealthy mentally days this month or 15 anxious days per month, and we compare that to the national average or we compare it to another sample, we can come up with what we believe are meaningful conclusions regarding the outcome measure. So in this study, we simply compared these scores of mild depression, and we compared the number of days where people had to claim that they had mental unhealthy days and also anxious days. And we noted a rather significant difference between those who ate a lot of ultra-processed foods and those who ate very little ultra-processed foods. It's impossible in the U.S. population to find people who don't eat any ultra-processed food. Or if, if they do exist, the sample size is so small, you can't even use it as a reference group. Hmm, that's interesting. The reason that's interesting to me is if you compare the probability of developing lung cancer between a smoker and a non-smoker, you'll find that smokers are 20 times more likely than non-smokers to develop lung cancer. But if you compare light smokers to smokers or heavier smokers, the probability of developing lung cancer in the heavy smokers is about three times as high. So once you have even a small amount of exposure to something, you are going to reduce the size of the effect you're going to see in your research. So if we did have a population of people that ate no ultra-processed food at all, and then we compared them to people who ate moderate amounts or even heavy amounts of ultra-processed food, the size of the effect we would see in our study could be, I'm going to say, I mean, this is very theoretical, so allow me to just theorize for a moment, the size of the effect could be substantially higher than our reference group where we use people who did consume ultra-processed food. They just consumed much less of it than the average. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned something to me in a previous conversation prior to our interview, and you said that people who are prescribed medications for depression will typically gain weight as a result of those medications. And I've, I've been giving this comment quite a bit of thought because for women in particular, when women start gaining weight, it makes us feel badly about ourselves. And it might be because we're less physically agile, but it could also be because of the way society makes us feel if we're not the fit and trim ideal. So I think that we really need to talk about the role of the pharmaceuticals and how those affect our mental health and weight gain and how that plays into the ultra-processed food issue. Sure. I mean, the, the drugs that are uh, called SSRIs, the serotonin selective reuptake inhibitors. And certainly, if you are taking dopamine receptor antagonists, these drugs induce a lot of weight gain. A woman could start on an SSRI, Lexapro or Prozac or something, and within a couple of months, gain 10 pounds. So not just a woman, a man as well. And this is simply just one of the side effects of the medication. 
There are other side effects as well. There are sexual side effects to taking these medications. So the decision to take antidepressants is a meaningful decision. And boy, wouldn't it be a much better clinical decision if we offered people the opportunity to change their diet before resorting to medication? Because there is randomized clinical trial data where if you put people on a healthy diet, Mediterranean-type diet, their depression is relieved to a much higher level than the placebo group in those kind of studies. So if we have high levels of evidence, and randomized clinical trials is our best level of evidence, and it's the least onerous option, to me, diet would be first-line therapy for the treatment of mild depression, and rather than medication where we're going to run into a whole bunch of side effects that are counterproductive, as you point out. Gaining weight can affect your mood as well. Exactly. I love that you're bringing this up because if I think about the populations that are really forced to eat highly processed foods, even ultra processed foods, there are people who are institutionalized where food is seen as a way to save money. You know, you can affect the bottom line if you give people cheap, highly processed foods. But I'm thinking about the mental health impact, for example, in schools and in prisons and even in hospitalization where a person is there for a long time and mental health institutions. If we would just look at food first as a healing factor, just think of the broad implications for that for a healthier, more productive and happier population. Well, I think it's, you know, it's not only a valuable thought in concept. It's actually a valuable thought in evidence-based medicine. We have the data now to suggest that this is what we should be doing. People who have mental health problems should be tried on a healthy diet first because it's effective. So we have the data, as good a data as you would get with medication. So we should try it before we embark upon a path that has a lot of side effects and other complications. But as you brought out earlier in the show, often people don't want to take the time to improve their lifestyle, and they would rather resort to taking medication. I wrote a paper a few years ago entitled Adherence to Healthy Lifestyle Behaviors. I think the title was something of that sort. And it was, again, looking at this national database, and it was very simply categorized as whether people are eating a healthy diet, how much exercise they're doing, whether or not they're smoking, whether they're drinking to excess, and whether they're keeping their weight in check. So those five behaviors, some people don't think keeping your weight in check is a behavior, but for this paper, we characterize it as a behavior. So if you exercise, you eat well, you don't drink too much, you don't smoke, and your weight is normal, you would get a five out of five. So what percentage of the U.S. population do you think of adults has a five out of five? Very few. Five percent. 5% of the U.S. population does that level of simple behavior, that level, which is really the basics. So we have a problem with lifestyle in this country, and part of that lifestyle problem is, as you described, people would rather take a medication for their problems than improve their lifestyle. And that's a tough hurdle to get over. It is. You know, Dr. Hecht, we're out of time. Unfortunately, we could speak for many more hours on these really fascinating topics. But I hope that at the end of the day, your important paper goes to change policy because ultimately that will have a huge effect on population health. 
But I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Eric Hecht, epidemiologist and adjunct professor at the Schmidt College of Medicine at Florida Atlantic University. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Hecht. Oh, thank you so much.